0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I had a pulmonary embolism. I had a blood clot in my lung three years ago. Wow. And I was put on the same blood thinner as Chris Bosch. I immediately started thinking about all the physiology, but I also thought, huh, I've got the same thing Chris Bosh has.
1: And I'm sure you were saying it the whole time that too bad you're not a athletic 6'11 stretch four because you would have made a (laughs) lot of money that way. Hi everybody and welcome to our show, Is It Serious? A conversational podcast where we share our doctor knowledge without all the complex doctor speak. I'm Jean-Luc Neptune, MD, my friends call me JL, and I'm an internal medicine physician based in New York City, where I practice addiction medicine at my company, Suntra Modern Recovery. I'm also a health technology and startup investing expert, and I'm passionate about making our healthcare system better for everyone.
0: Hi, I'm Dr. Mark Lewis. I'm a medical oncologist based in Salt Lake City, where I treat cancers of the gut. I'm also a patient myself with hereditary tumor syndrome, so I think about healthcare from both sides of the exam table. We are so excited
1: to be part of the Offscript Network. There are so many great shows coming out of Offscript.
0: That's right. Like F-U-M-S. Yes, you heard that right. F-U-M-S. Giving Multiple Sclerosis the Middle Finger with host Kathy Reagan Young.
1: She has a great episode called Funny Shit About MS with comedian Sherry Short, because sometimes you just have to laugh.
0: Yeah, and you have to love that she also interviews the Squatty Potty founders on another episode, a perfect pairing for our future Colonoscopy episode. So check out F-U-M-S on the Offscript Health Network. You can find the link in our show notes. All right.
1: So Mark, Sundays, I watch football and uh, it's painful to watch football. There was actually a post in the ESPN that said that for the last 10 years, the Jets and the Giants have been the worst teams in all of professional football. And this is what I hear on Sundays. So this is Jim Nance, and uh, if you're tuning into the New York Giants, the Giants are down uh, 99 to nothing now at the end of the first quarter. The second quarter begins in a moment, but first a word from our sponsor.
0: And always,
1: always, always, it's a drug ad. I can't escape it.
0: First and foremost, my condolences that you're living in the New York uh, football market. Uh, You know, I'm an oncologist. I help people process bad news, so just know that I'm (laughs) I'm here for you. But I, I watch the same games you do in a, in a different market. And it is absolutely pervasive. It's not just commercials, but it's it's drug commercials. And, and you get the sense that they very, very much know their audience. Uh, you know, typically if you've consumed a full day of NFL football, you've been sitting on your couch for, you know, nine hours and you may have, you know, circulatory problems. And so I don't think it's any, uh, any coincidence that there tend to be drugs that, uh, shall we say, target blood flow. So I guess this week, what we're
1: talking about is, or the question that we're asking is, what is it with all these drug ads on TV? You know, when you feel the weight of sadness, when morning comes in the middle of the night, ask your doctor about
0: something different. So fascinating for me, J.L. One thing I should let you in the audience know is I'm actually Scottish. I'm not from America. And uh, that means not only do I see things as a patient physician, I see things as a Scottish American. And in the UK, there are no drug ads on television. And I think what's so important to realize is we live in an exceptional market, literally a market, in the sense that we have these, these drug ads. It's, it's very, very rare in the world, and it is certainly the exception and not the rule. Got it,
1: and it's so, so funny to hear you. You sort of went hard into that Scottish accent, and then it sort of tailed off. You know, it was like uh, what was that movie, Train Spotting, or whatever. I got a little, you know, you <laughs> and <Ewan> McGregor <laughs> there. That was great.
0: <laughs> but yeah, no, you're right. I have this like kind of tepid Scottish accent where you can make it really, really thick if you want but you have to kind of dilute it for mass mass consumption.
1: The, the accent that I can turn off is the, the Jersey accent. I'm from Northern New Jersey. I went to high school with Paisan, so I can really turn it on if I, if I need to.
2: <laughs> hey, forget about it.
1: But talking about these ads, I mean, I have to say, it, it, it's like a whole genre now, you know? Like you can, there's a whole style, there's a whole kind of way of thinking. It's very stylistic, you, you, you expect it. And I'll tell you, you know, the, the drug ads that I've really been hating recently, there's this ad for Nerdtech, which is a migraine ad. And look, migraines are an important issue. I've had a migraine here or two, but I'll tell you what makes the nerd tech ads very annoying for me is the intrusion of celebrity culture. So now, I don't know if you've seen it, but Khloe Kardashian, who is like, you know, really inhabits the ninth circle of celebrity hell, in my view, has migraines. So I get to see Khloe Kardashian. Now, Whoopi Goldberg, another person who, you know, okay, Wh- Whoopi Goldberg is a big star, but like, do I care? Do you care
0: that these celebrities have migraines? Yeah, it's interesting. It's like, you know, stars, they're just like us. You know, they have horrible, crippling headaches too. And it's funny on the, on the migraine front, my wife suffers from migraines and her medicine is a injection that she has to give herself monthly. And I've seen it advertised in television and somehow they managed to completely sort of skirt around the fact that this is, for all intents and purposes, a harpoon <laughs> that she plunges into her own thigh every month. And the first time my son saw her do it, he thought you know, she was going to be seriously hard. It's, it's enormous. And so it's funny. On the one hand, these commercials seem to have to go to sort of legal lens to tell us all the horrendous things that can happen to these drugs. On the other hand, as you said, they also are very artful. And how they relay messages. The advertisers presumably don't want to have to tell you all the bad things. And so there's. A, I, I find a lot of sort of sleight of hand.
1: I, th- I think they actually tune down these ads, but there's a drug called Ziaflex, which is used for like uh, collagen injections. It's used for Dupuytren's contracture, which is a, 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 a collagen problem in the hand, but it's also used for Peyronie's disease, which is this, this, this abnormal curvature of the penis. And I remember they had all these ads where they were showing like Different kinds of fruits like cucumbers and eggplants that were curved, and I was like, you know what, I, I think I'm, I think I'm pretty cool, but that's too much for me. I don't know if I can take the Ziaflex anymore.
0: Yeah, it's it's not that subtle, right? When you've got the you got the banana, and also I love the way they worked flex into the name. That's really a, <laughs> a nice a nice angle. But you know, it's it's kind of awkward, JL, because you know these things come on television. You talked about you know watching sports. I'll be honest. One of the things I love to do on the weekends is hang out with my kids. I've got a ten-year-old son, and some of these ads could be slightly difficult to um, explain. We just had the formal birds and the bees talk last week at his oh, school, boy. but frankly, before that, there was almost like an informal education that came from media. And, and you mentioned Peyronie's disease. You know, I live in Salt Lake City, famously a fairly you know, conservative place, yep. and there are massive massive billboards on the highway here that are unavoidable that advertise Peyronie's disease uh, refer quite graphically, as you say, to curvature of the organ. And it's a little tricky to explain that to your child at 65 miles an hour.
1: I can only imagine. You know, it's funny. I, I live here in New York, so we have, you know, sort of homeless people roaming about, often screaming, you know, profanities at the top of their lungs. So I'm used to explaining that kind of stuff to my kids, you know, like, you know, but the the other stuff is, is a little certainly more challenging as a parent, for sure.
0: How old are your kids again? So I have a 10-year-old uh, son and I have a 13-year-old daughter. Uh, and as we might discuss, they are actually so tuned in now to these drug ads. So my wife's uh, a doctor, so it's a two-physician family. We're a medical household, but it's not even the way that my wife and I talk professionally. It's the language, uh, the very specific phrasing of these drug ads. My daughter actually is an excellent mimic, and she's memorized uh, a lot of them. Uh, There seems to be a ton for psoriasis in particular. We'll talk about that in the next segment, sure. Mm -hmm. One time she asked me, Dad, how bad is psoriasis that you would risk taking this drug? Because, you know, the, the drug ad lists off, you know, the risks include and are limited to lymphoma, you know, reactivation of tuberculosis and hepatitis, death. Um, and she, you know, I think was trying to weigh that against, you know, how how badly affected is your skin. So it's an interesting uh, balancing act that even our kids are picking up on.
1: Sure, and, and so it sounds like a smart kid. My uh, my kids are twelve and fourteen, so right around that cognitive, you know, development level. And you definitely see that. And, and let's talk about side effects, right? I mean, you know, I, I remember as we were talking about this episode and getting prepared, you you, you made the comment like, "There's no other product that you'll buy that get, in a sixty second commercial is going to give you forty five seconds of the things that could kill you with this product, right?" So it, that's that's a very peculiar thing
0: that I don't think a lot of people pick up on. You you know? I don't think the Ford Motor Company was too thrilled to advertise that the Pinto would explode You know, <laughs> when rear-ended. Right. You know, I don't think Delta Airlines is advertising the number of planes that have crashed. But essentially, that's what's happening here and is so bizarre. Again, it, being from another country, and I've lived here for, for decades now, it still is so striking to me that this is almost uniquely an American phenomenon. But again, with my kids growing up with it. It's what they consider normal. And it's like you say, it's it's on every Sunday afternoon with the NFL. It's on every evening on traditional you know, TV channels. And it's just unavoidable. Yeah. I
1: think at the end of the day, it's probably a negotiated settlement. Like, you know, I think pharma companies wanted to be able to promote drugs. And I think the doctor said, OK, well, we're going to lose this battle. So, uh, you know, maybe the regulator said, OK, you can promote, but you got to talk about all the bad things as well, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But the, the interesting thing is maybe the reason that the ads focus on all this imagery and all this interesting presentations of the wheat fields and the rugged man is maybe to <laughs> distract you from those side effects, right? Because these these, yes. these ads have all these visual cliches that you see over and over again, you know?
0: Well, it's like street magic, right? Like up-close magic is all about misdirection. So, you know, like David Blaine has you looking one place while he's doing something else. It's, it's almost like that. And it, I find actually that the... The happiest couples I see in television are the ones that are on tropical vacations together in commercials for herpes medicine. They just look like they're having a fantastic time, you know? Yeah. And then, you know, we can also talk about the the visual metaphors that they've come up with. I still don't quite understand the Cialis ad that has the bathtubs – on the top of a hill. Do you remember that? <laughs> I remember all of them. I remember, I mean, with, with the erectile dysfunction ads, there
1: was like the cougars ad, like the older attractive women, I, and I hate to use that term, but, you know, that that, that was like a, a certain genre. And then there was the rugged man genre. And, and, you know, there are all these different kinds of concepts that they use. And then you had these weird incongruous ones, like the bathtub on the hill. Like, what is that
0: about? My wife and I went to see Jerry Seinfeld in, in Vegas before the pandemic and he had a great bit. He was like, who has the energy for that after you've dragged the Bathtubs up the hill, and it, was, <laughs> it, it really is a, a little bit of an odd, uh, an odd vista uh, to be uh, looking down upon with your with your beloved in the in adjacent bathtub. But and you know, and just going back to uh,
1: side effects, I think one of the things that you really get out of the training, right, after going through, you know, you were, were brothers in the training, right? You know, one of the things you realize is that every substance you could ever put in your body is going to have a side effect like aspirin is going to have side effects tylenol has side effects we don't think about it in that way Uh, but i think that maybe a lot of people don't understand that like when you take some of these medications and again we'll talk about this in the next segment that are you know powerful drugs that are you know biochemically engineered like they can impact your body in lots of different ways some of them are unlikely but some of them are very likely and it's it's interesting just to see that list of side effects because you know that some of those side effects are probably very very rare but there are some side effects that happen more often you know
0: yeah i completely agree with you and i'm very sensitive to this actually as an oncologist so i'm a cancer doctor one of the things i do not the only thing i do but one of the things i do is prescribe chemotherapy Nobody, nobody wants chemo. And so the whole purpose of many of my conversations, especially when I first meet a patient, is to explain why I think they need chemo. And you can well imagine, JL, you just said it yourself, if I list off every single possible side effect, um, I hate to make it sound like salesmanship, but no one's ever going to come back. And it's all about couching it in relative risk. And I think the drug ads... Uh, lack actually a little bit of that or a lot of that nuance, you, you tend actually not to really understand how rare or, or common a side effect is based on, on those commercials.
1: Yeah, and, and, and I can almost guarantee what you're gonna say here, but the, the, the scariest patient to you, right, and we love our patients so much, is the guy who's read the whole package insert, right? And he, sp- and he, he has highlighted like the side effect section, and he gets to like the 35th side effect, and he's like, well, what about this one, right?
0: You know, it's interesting, as a patient myself, I do believe in self-advocacy and it all comes down to what is your information source. The internet is a big place. I know there was, I think, a joke on The Office where Steve Carell's character said that Wikipedia is so great because you know you're getting the best information because anyone in the world can write it, <laughs> yeah, which I thought was such a great take. But um, it's true is that you know, buyer beware and these commercials are quite purposefully trying to sell you. Um, a drug and I think you just have to keep that mindset and be a savvy consumer yeah
1: yeah and by the way you mentioned uh, David Blaine Street magic I actually appeared in the first David Blaine Street magic episode uh, if you Whoa. if you go back and watch the first episode um, there is a scene like in the, like the first six minutes where he does this arm twisting trick and I was a uh, medical student at Roosevelt Hospital I was doing an ER rotation and uh, David Blaine walked up to me and said hey can I show you something and uh, I said hey why not and it's amazing to this day, this is 25 years ago. I still have friends and people who, who, who will write me or send in an email and say, dude, I saw you on TV.
0: Oh, that is so awesome. <laughs> oh, that's great. I hope you get residuals. I hope you get that check
1: in the mail for like six cents every month. I wish I could. You know, my wife is a singer, so my wife gets, uh, you know, like uh, these streaming uh, residuals, are like, like 0.5 cents, you know, 0.3 cents. So it would probably be somewhere in that range. <laughs> probably as uh, as a consumer, you just have to understand, like, The pharma companies are required to tell you all this information. But at the end of the day, a lot of this stuff is rare. And really talk with your doctor, I think, about the risks and the benefits. I think that's a a key lesson that I think I try to teach everybody who is not a doctor as I try to help them understand how we think as doctors.
0: Again, I, I just think that some of these risks get skewed thinking about the ads versus actually, as you mentioned yourself, some over-the-counter medicine. So, I, again, I, I don't know if our audience knows this. I don't know if it's widely known, but Tylenol or acetaminophen is actually one of the leading causes of really horrendous uh, liver failure in this country. It is it's actually frighteningly easy to overdose on, on Tylenol uh, to the point that some people end up needing a liver transplant. And, you know, that's a, a drug that, you know, anyone, any adult can buy over-the-counter quite easily. So, you know, that notion of uh, people overtaking
1: Tylenol, that's, I mean, when I was a resident, you'd see that once a year, right? If somebody who had taken too much Tylenol and, you know, the threshold, if I remember correctly, was like, if you drink three glasses of wine a day and you take Tylenol, you can actually very easily and accidentally injure your liver.
0: You and I have the benefit of our training. And so, and of course, we're going to see more extreme examples and those are going to be more memorable. But I think that's, you know, what we're trying to bring here is is that perspective to, Medical messaging that everyone in our audience is encountering, whether or not they do this for a living or not. All right, sounds good. And with that, I think it's time to take a break
1: and uh, hear a word from our sponsor, who may or may not be a drug company.
2: Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital.
0: You know, we were discussing earlier, JL, that this is not a normal phenomenon globally. To turn on your television and see, you know, direct-to-consumer or DTC ads, uh, that actually only happens in two countries. And it's actually fascinating. Um, I I still can't quite reason the other country, but it's the United States – and New Zealand, yeah, and that's it.
1: You know, it's, it, it's funny, when we were playing this game before to try to figure out the two countries, I always thought it was Australia, because I, I feel like a kinship with the Australians. I feel like they are the yes. most, of all the Anglo cus- countries, they are most like us, but maybe the New Zealanders are most like us, you know?
0: Yeah, maybe it's the Kiwis. I was actually in Australia a couple of years ago, again, in the, in the before times, and uh, before I went, someone said to me, the Australians are going to love them. It's like if British people grew up in Texas and that was exactly what it was like. and, and I agree with you, I think in, in spirit I, I could see that you know ads might might work there. but it's just so interesting to me again that if you take the entire world, those are the two nations and it actually shows in terms of spending. the Americans are five percent of the world's population, but we account for something like 60 plus percent of prescription drug spending. Sure. So you know that's why there's return on investment to have these ads.
1: Yeah, for sure. And the funny thing too, right, is that this hasn't been going on throughout the history of medicine. This is a fairly recent phenomenon. For a long time, uh, pharma companies have uh, marketed to doctors. So like, if you grew up in my house, you know, my dad was a pathologist. I know your dad was a doc. I used to see drug ads all the time uh, as a kid. Um, But it really is not until like the mid 1990s that the FDA finally breaks and allows pharma companies to advertise. The Bush administration, you had a new, FDA commissioner who was favorable to pharma advertising, and, and it starts then. And I'll distinctly remember the beginning of this, because it's 1997. I am finishing medical school. I'm on the subway, and all of a sudden, the subway is plastered with Claritin ads, just plastered. There's just, you know, like anybody who's trying to do anything like in the healthcare startups world, you know, you've arrived, you know, you've raised a lot of money when your ads are all over the subways. And I just distinctly remember uh, allergies, which I have being the first big indication and the
0: first real
1: ads you saw on TV. Do you remember that time?
0: I I do actually. Yeah. And And it's so funny again, to kind of situate this historically in the U.S. So Um, As you know, but as our audience might not know, you know, when we do our sort of medical apprenticeship, there's residency, which used to literally mean that we lived in the hospital. And then if you specialize, like I did in uh, cancer medicine, that's a a fellowship. So my point is, when I graduated from fellowship, one of my co-fellows gave me this poster that I have on the office wall right now. It came out in 1938. It was a U.S. public health announcement. And it says, I'll just read it to you, beware the cancer quack. A reputable physician does not promise a cure, demand advance payment, or advertise. And so what I'm getting at is that, you know, almost now, almost a century ago, it was viewed as essentially unprofessional and beneath us to be marketing. And obviously, oncology has its own sort of history of, you know, snake oil and taking advantage of people. Uh, But you're right, I, you know, I moved to America in the late 80s, and um, I don't remember any drug advertising, really, as you say, uh, until um, I was going to college. And it's so funny too to, to kind of get your New York spin on things that you're seeing things on the subway. You know, I don't live in a place that has a subway system, but so I you know see billboards and I see television. And again, it's so pervasive that even our children, who you know often have limited screen time during that time, they are getting exposed. And uh, it's amazing just how. Uh, these messages are are getting out there one way or the other.
1: Yeah, and it's fascinating too. You know, it's not just pharma companies. Hospitals too are big advertisers. So, you know, I'm a Yankee fan, another unfortunate team to follow in recent years. <laughs> and I can tell you, you know, if you look at Yankees advertising from the 1970s and 80s, right? Old broadcast, it was, you know, man, manufacturers, Hanover's Trust, like the big banks or Marlboro. Nowadays on the Yankee game, it is literally the three or four big academic, health systems that advertise against each other. It is a really remarkable thing to see, especially in light of this warning that, you know, real doctors, you know, don't advertise, you know? And look, at the end of the day, it's a big business. You know, the global pharmaceutical industry is almost a trillion dollars. It's like eight hundred and fifty or nine hundred billion dollars. Um, you know, uh, we were looking at some stats before um, and we saw that uh, pharmaceutical TV advertising alone is six, seven billion dollars a year. So it's it's big business. And I think going back to what you were saying before is the reason they advertise is the reason you advertise any product at the end of the day is it impacts people's decision making for sure.
0: Yeah, I mentioned this poster, this cancer quack poster came out in 1938, that was the same year uh, that there was the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, where drugs had to be proven safe and receive the FDA's approval before uh, they could be marketed. Even then, there was some uh, law about a clear labeling Sure.
1: And, you know, w- one very interesting observation from your daughter was, you know, if every ad that you see, or you see multiple ads in a row that are for rheumatoid arthritis, right? Or, yeah. you know, for skin conditions or whatever, you, you you think that those are really the primary problems that people have, right? Yes. We know as doctors, the number one is heart disease and number two is diabetes. Uh, but, you know, for, you know, if you were to watch the ads, you get sort of a skewed view of what diseases are most prevalent or have the highest incidence you know?
0: Yeah, honestly, when I was reviewing the list of the kind of top 10 most marketed drugs, I would have guessed probably, I don't know, eight of them. In my mind, I'm thinking, okay, prevalence, like what are the most common disorders that affect Americans? And then you actually look at the list and you realize, well, first, my first takeaway was, wow, we have a lot of inflammation in this country. <laughs> like, And you can you know spin that however you want. I, you can say that our political discourse is inflamed. But um, I think we're painting with two Brought a brush if we say, oh, pharma is bad. Pharma is not bad. In fact, so much progress uh, is due uh, to uh, the pharmaceutical companies. Uh, And and I think there's lots of drugs that simply would not exist uh, because there would not be the incentive to develop them if it wasn't for our business partners. So I think that's important to kind of state here. Sure, for sure. On the other hand, uh, this is not a purely altruistic enterprise. And we know there is a lot of money to be made. I think when you look at the list, of the top drugs. And I'll just go ahead and spoil the top one. The top one was Humira, which is fascinating to me and not what I would have guessed. Um, I suspect uh, that there is quite a lot of money to be made in marketing that particular agent.
1: And you know, for, for listeners who may not be familiar with these new drugs, um, Humira is a drug that is actually a monoclonal antibody. This is the unbelievably advanced science that is specifically targeted at a substance that is not operating normally in the human body. So it's amazing science that is really changing the lives of people who had psoriasis, who had rheumatoid arthritis. So again, you start to see they're called biologics. And those biologic drugs are heavily prescribed because some of these drugs have $100,000 a year price points. They're unbelievably expensive drugs.
0: So I mentioned before my fellowship. So in training, uh, I did my training at at the Mayo Clinic. There was one drug that cost $300,000 per dose. Uh, thankfully, I suppose for everybody, it was a for a very rare condition. And there was literally a block in the computer where if you clicked on it, you know this is not a drug that you want to be prescribing erroneously. right? right. That's going to be a costly mistake. It literally prompted you to enter your identity. And there was essentially sort of this list, a very, very short list of doctors that were authorized to prescribe it. And that's obviously an extreme example. The other thing that kind of makes me smile is... The names of these drugs
1: oh my God. Um, are
0: also very, very carefully um, focus grouped, I believe, because it, you know there's always the brand name and then there's the the generic name. The generic name for Humera is Adalimumab, which doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. And its class is that it is a uh, antagonist of tumor necrosis factor, which again is not something that non-immunologists are typically familiar with. So I, I also love the, the names and I know just how workshopped these names are when, again, they're being broadcast so broadly.
1: Yeah, and I mean, there are whole agencies that exist, marketing agencies that exist and specialize just in drug names. I'm sure in a drug that's going to do billions of dollars, you know, they spend millions or tens of millions on the name. So, you know, that's that's uh, that's definitely a thing. You know, going back to what you were saying about the $300,000 drug, there's a piece of me that is Woody Allen early in his career, sort of slapstick, and there's the, three, the, the early part of me that worries about dropping that $300,000 vial and just <laughs> being on the hook all of a sudden for three hundred thousand dollars of medication on the floor.
0: Uh, all I can say is, as a fellow, don't get me wrong, I wasn't uh, below the poverty line, but it would have taken me, gosh, well over a decade to <laughs> to repay uh, that single vial. So I totally hear you. I was also kind of smiling because one of the uh, other sort of top most remunerative drugs is Sky Rizzy. That Sky Rizzy is a very clever marketing ad where they have like a skywriter. I think, again, the way that they kind of put together the names and the visuals is extremely uh, clever. Sure. Absolutely. And maybe
1: we can talk about, you know, the, some of the good and the bad of this. I mean, I think, you know, as you were saying, you know, it's not all bad. I mean, I definitely think that there are some good parts to this. I think that drug ads influence the culture. And I think drug ads have gotten us, pharmaceutical ads, I use the word drug, but pharmaceutical ads have gotten us to maybe talk about things that are taboo that we might not otherwise talk about. Again, you know, erectile dysfunction being the perfect example. I mean, you know, 20 years ago, if you had told me that I'd be getting bombarded with erectile dysfunction ads, which seem less common now, you know, that was actually a taboo topic. But now I think people are more comfortable. I think cancer is still very taboo and people are not open about talking about cancer and i think that these ads may have altered the culture to some extent you know
0: i i could not agree with you more and, and of course the the stigma that surrounds cancer is a huge concern of mine and you know even not that long ago i gosh i think it was maybe the the 1960s Uh, Or or the 1970s, I think, is when the New York Times decided that they could actually print the phrase breast cancer. Oh, wow. It was so taboo. And even reconstructing my own family history, JL, I mentioned at the top that I have a hereditary condition that resulted in my own cancer. You know, I can trace it back to my paternal grandfather who was a minister in Belfast in Northern Ireland in the 1960s. Wow. And the reason I have such a hard time reconstructing what happened to him, well, it's two things. Number one, his medical records have long been destroyed, but also it was just not something that you talked about. Yeah. Like it was it was truly stigmatized. And in some ways it still is. Like there's actually a lot of lung cancer that is not caused by smoking, yep. for instance. Mm-hmm. And yet we have such a Difficult time, an uphill battle culturally decoupling those two things to the point that you know lung cancer patients have been horribly mistreated, as if anybody deserves their disease, and as if nicotine itself isn't horribly addictive. So I, I agree with you. You know, with almost everything, there's good and bad. I think, then, as much as we might joke about the ads around erectile dysfunction and men throwing footballs through you know tire swings, <laughs> it is actually good on some level. Uh, that men are now able to discuss this with their physicians and, and get help for a problem. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, there there is a risk here, I think, of over-medicalizing common issues. So, for instance, again, on the subject of men's health, there's this really interesting debate around um, low testosterone, oh, which yeah. has, of course, been sort of marketed now as low T, something very sure. kind of catchy. And almost like a pharma creation, right? I mean, like how many
1: doctors really talk about low T? That's not really a thing, you know?
0: It's interesting. Yeah. So for many years, you know, in my oncology practice, we actually, especially in the breast cancer population, treat women differently uh, before and after menopause. And that's because there's a lot of breast cancer that thrives on uh, hormones like estrogen and progesterone. And quite famously, those change before and after menopause. But men go through something not dissimilar called andropause. Mm -hmm. And I sort of wonder if this whole low T phenomenon isn't actually pathologizing something that happens to us fairly naturally. And that's, it's so interesting. On the one hand, I want people, I really want people to have a good quality of life. On the other hand, I don't really like people being labeled with things that might not technically or truly be disorders. And, and you're right, there's a a huge debate about that. There's a a, a clinic near me, that I won't name that almost exclusively exists to provide uh, testosterone supplementation. And it's not Entirely benign. The more testosterone you have, the more blood you make. Uh, to the point that some of my patients actually have to go and donate blood because they have an excessive amount because of the testosterone. So it kind of everything is connected. Uh, the body's physiology thrives on balance, and sometimes we don't need to be um, adjusting these things as much as the again the ads might lead us to believe.
1: Yeah, and, and I think you you sort of hit on some of the bad stuff. I think what happens is you know, I think the uh, pharmaceutical ads may lead to over-prescribing, you know. Um, I think that there's certainly a lot of self-diagnosing that goes on, you know. Have you had these symptoms? Have you had that? And, you know, as you know, as a physician, it can be very difficult to diagnose something. They're often the, the symptoms overlap in, in, in terms of patterns. But I think the, the big thing, and, and you certainly experience this as an oncologist, is, is sort of this weakening of the patient provider relationship, you know. Like, as you were saying, if your doctor doesn't know this, it's a really unlikely that your doctor like what was the example you use? I can't even remember.
0: Yes. So I guess the, the maybe slightly more technical term I would use is therapeutic alliance, this uh-huh. idea that you have a relationship with your patient and it is built on trust. And as I said earlier, to give somebody chemo, or more importantly, actually on the patient's side to receive chemo, there is a lot of trust in me to accept what some people would not unfairly call poison, right? So what I'm getting at is there's a there's a drug ad quite famously for a product called Nulasta, uh, which is basically something that boosts your bone marrow and encourages your body to make more white blood cells after you've been given chemotherapy that will weaken your immune system. And it boggles my mind, JL, every time I see it on TV, because just like you, it comes on a lot. And this is why. As an oncologist, if you're not already thinking about your patient's immune system after chemotherapy, you shouldn't be relying on your patients to prompt you to do that. And a- again, I-, I can only imagine that the manufacturers of Nulasta, who again, make a fine product, they must do this because it's effective. And I think there's a lot of power bordering almost on coercion in the patient asking for a product by name. In fact, there's there's data to back that up. The, the rate of prescribing any given drug it escalates, I think it's almost tenfold. If the patient asks the physician specifically for that. And that of course is the crux of the whole reason this marketing exists. There's there's a psychology to that on both sides of the table. And and I think, you know, what we like to do with every
1: one of our episodes here is just share our recommendations and share our insights, you know, uh, so often friends and family reach out and say, hey, JL, hey, Mark, what would you do in this case? So I think what I like to think about in terms of drug ads is I encourage people to be skeptical, you know, be a skeptical consumer. You should be a skeptical consumer in, in everything you see in your life. You know, um, we are a very advanced consumer economy, and I think people are used to asking questions and thinking critically. So if you see a drug ad that may or may not relate to you, you know, be critical. Take everything you see with a grain of salt um, and I think really work with your doctor to think about risk and benefit. I think those are things that are really important.
0: That's the yeah. one part of the script I actually do like. And I, again, I know we can make fun of it, but where it says, ask your doctor if this is right for you. I think they're legally required to have that in there. But I do like the idea of sparking conversation with the prescribing physician. You know, you are very familiar with this word paternalism. Sure. Which, again, traditionally, and I'm not saying this was right, meant that whoever was wearing the white coat would stride into the room, have all the power, dictate what happened, and leave. And, you know, that never really should have been the model, of course. On the other hand, what I really am trying to avoid, especially in oncology, is what I call a la carte medicine, where I walk in with the menu and I say, hey, listen, welcome to my practice, what would you like? Um, I actually don't think that's fair as much as that might sort of really open as much autonomy as possible, I don't think that's fair to the patient to be left with that sort of burden of choice. And so I think the happy medium is this phrase, and I I try to live it authentically or practice it authentically, shared decision-making. And at their best, what these ads are doing, I think, is sparking meaningful conversation. The last thing I would say, though, JL, is time is so valuable in a medical practice. It is literally commodified in healthcare. The amount of time that we spend with you Um, has a value assigned to it. You know, I get an hour with someone when I meet them, when I'm telling them they have cancer. And in that hour, I have to review the history, learn about their family, learn about them, you know, their lifestyle, their work, lay out the diagnosis, the stage, the prognosis, the treatment. That's in just one hour. So what I'm saying is it's not wrong. It's absolutely not wrong to ask your doctor if drug X is right for you. But you may only have... (laughs) a very short amount of time. And that time has quite literally a premium on it. So use, use your time, use your discourse with your physician wisely.
1: And I think you forgot to mention that in that hour when you're when you're sharing that bad news, you're comforting them, you're 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 helping them answer questions that they may have never thought of before, right? And I and I think one of the things I, I really want to talk a lot about in our in our podcast series is the importance of that human relationship and the things that doctors do that people don't really understand that we do, you know, and what the job really is as opposed to what it appears to be.
0: Spoiler alert, physicians are human beings too. <laughs> That's going to be, a, I, I think, a really important thread that we explore together, Jale. And I really... Just so thrilled to be able to to talk to you and to to talk to our audience as well. I totally agree. I'm really excited about our podcast and working together.
1: But before we go, though, we have something from our questions from friends and family segment. Uh, and this week is a question from my wife. Uh, so my wife is very very concerned about medications and their expiration dates, and is always afraid that medicine that's expired is turned into cyanide and will kill us immediately. Uh, Mark, what's your what's your feeling about medication? medication? medication and expiration dates. Do medications go bad?
0: Well, I empathize with your wife, JL, because New Year's Day, I opened the fridge and I was staring right at a container of eggs that said they expired on December 31st, so. Oh, conundrum. I started off the year living dangerously, but (laughs) in all seriousness, you know, some of the medicines I prescribe, you know, oral chemotherapy cost thousands of dollars. And this comes up quite a bit with patients where you have to reassure them that it's not like, you know, Cinderella's carriage turning into a pumpkin at midnight. The medicines continue to work and are non-toxic beyond, you know, the, the very expiry date. But provided they're kept in a, a, a cool, uh, ideally dark place, like a medicine cabinet, they will uh, live on almost, almost in perpetuity.
1: And uh, yeah, I agree. I think most medicines uh, are, can last for a long time. And if you ever have a question, ask your doctor. All right. And Mark, I think you have a, a comment from
0: uh, one of our other
1: segments, our Mean Tweets of the Week segment.
0: Yes, so I live probably half my life conservatively on Twitter, so I'm no stranger to online abuse directed at doctors. I'll start actually with a, a DM, a direct message. So the DM says, "Crohn's, and this is key, misspelled Crohn's, C H R O N S, can be cured by eating a carnivore diet and getting plenty sunlight. Bet they didn't teach you that in school." Oh and boy. the context. <laughs> The context here is this was sent to a gastroenterologist, actually a very good GI doc at Dr. Harry Thomas, who responds by saying, I've spent over 10 years dedicated to the care of patients with Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, but only just learned that there apparently is a cure thanks to this Bitcoin trader in my DMs, which (laughs) I thought was so beautifully put. You and I, when we encounter disease, We would love to be able to cure it. And this this definitely happens to me in oncology people suggesting I've overlooked a cure for cancer. My response is, and this is, I hope, the farthest thing from glib, we cure what we can. And the key, I think, is not dismissing everything as snake oil or false, but really subjecting any remedy to the same standard of evidence uh, that we would apply to our own. You know, conventionally vetted treatments. And I think that is perhaps what's missing in this online dialogue. Obviously, there's not a whole lot of nuance here, but you know, this, this doctor who spent his career dedicated to inflammatory bowel disease, of course, he's not going to overlook what sounds like actually a very straightforward uh, solution to the disease that bedevils his patients.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, for people who are not familiar with Twitter, the DM is sort of like, you know, instead of somebody just standing on the street corner yelling at you, the DM, they're in your living room and they're actually talking to you, you know, they're 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 interacting with you up close. So uh, and I totally agree. And I think, Mark, you know, a big thing that we'll focus on is the importance of evidence, the importance that of knowing that doctors don't know everything. And, you know, a lot of the time when people expect us to know everything, you know, we're not even though we're experts, we we
0: don't know every answer every time. If you don't mind, I'll, I'll close here and tell our listeners that, you know, audience participation is a really important part of what we envision for the show. And we want to hear their questions. So you can reach out to us at on Twitter. JL, you want to tell them your handle? Sure. I'm just Jean-Luc Neptune, uh, at Jean-Luc Neptune, uh, J-E-A-N-L-U-C-N-E-P-T-U-N-E. And I'm at Mark Lewis, MD. And we'd also encourage you to call us at Offscript Health and leave a message. We have a voicemail line. And we're going to use some of these recordings in the show. We're going to use your questions to prompt our conversations and hopefully give you meaningful answers. And our number is 855-AUDIO-66. With that, we thank you so much for listening. And finally, I'll end with a disclaimer that while we love talking about medicine and healthcare, we want you to remember this show doesn't provide medical advice, and just like the drug ads, if you have questions, we want to make sure that you ask your doctor.
1: And with that, thanks so much for being here, and please join us next time for Is It Serious?
2: That's all for now. If you like this show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all of your friends to listen. Do you have a medical question or concern? Ask us by leaving a message at 855 audio sixty six. That's 855-283-4666. Or you can email us at isitserious at offscript.com. And we might just use your question in a future show. Is It Serious is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producers are Joey Brenneman and Ariel Nachman. Our hosts are Dr. Jean-Luc Neptune and Dr. Mark Lewis. Our researcher is Emma Gomez, and our sound mixer is Kyle Moore. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com.